Well, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am glad that you're here. Thank you to our students for leading us in worship tonight. We are praying for you as you experience D-Now this weekend. And uh, may God be praised and may your faith be strengthened because of it. Tonight we're going to continue our study of 1 Peter. I ask for you to draw your sword, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to read in your hearing verses 13 to 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 13, and I'll conclude at the end of that chapter, verse 22. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it's the Lord's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission unto him. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, teaching, and understanding of his old perfect word. You may be seated. By a show of hands tonight, let me ask the question, how many of you consider yourself blessed? The vast majority, if not all of us, raise our hands. And the reality is that most of us define blessing in very materialistic ways. We would say that we're blessed because we have money in the bank account, or food in the cupboard, or a truck in the driveway, or a roof over our head, or clothes on our back, or more clothes in the closet. Because of the materialism of life, many of us have come to the conclusion that we are blessed. Still other people think of the blessing of life in its salvific sense. What I mean is that because our sins have been forgiven, because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because we have a home in heaven, because we have eternal life in Jesus Christ, there are more than a few of us who would simply say we are blessed because we have the knowledge of salvation that only comes in Jesus Christ. And so other people would define that blessing of life in 
ways of divine intervention where we would say things like, you know, God healed my body. I'm blessed. God spared the life of my loved one. The doctor gave me six months to live, and that was 16 years ago, may be your testimony. And because of that dramatic divine intervention, you may declare tonight, I am a blessed person. But you hear the way I described it so far. It's, it's materialism. It's because of salvation. It's because of God's intervention in your life. And all those, I guess, are, are fine, but According to 1 Peter, that is not how he describes the blessed life. Did you catch what he said in verse 14 of our passage? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Now before tonight, does anybody ever think to themselves, boy, if I suffer for the gospel, that means I have a blessed life. Most of us so say, no, it's crummy to suffer. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to have aches and pains. I don't want to suffer for the gospel. I don't want to be uh, uh, subject to persecution and ridicule and abuse and accusations leveled against me. I don't want to have to suffer for the gospel. Yet Peter says, if you suffer for doing what is good and right and holy in the eyes of God, you, my friend, are blessed. He has a different way of defining blessing. He'll say the same thing again in chapter 4, verse 14, that if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. Anybody made fun of you at school or work because of your explicit faith in Jesus Christ? If so, count yourself blessed. You're blessed when people make fun of you because of your adamant devotion to Christ you're blessed when other people pressure you uh, simply because of your unwavering commitment to the Lord. The Christians reading this letter in the first century, they experienced daily pressure to conceal their faith, to compromise their ethics, to conform to the wisdom of the times. Because of their faith in the first century, for those believers living in and scattered throughout Asia Minor, these believers were abused and slandered and ridiculed. They lost their property. They lost employment. They lost popularity. They had accusations leveled against them simply because they declared Jesus is Lord. And because of that, Peter says, you are blessed. Now, most believe that when Peter wrote this, it was in that small window of time when state-proposed persecution had not yet begun in full force in the Roman Empire. So it was right at that window, right before Nero got crazy, right before Nero really started breathing out murderous threats against the followers of Jesus. So it's in these moments that, that the Christians, they weren't suffering persecution from the Roman government at large, but they were suffering persecution and ridicule from other individuals in society who could not make heads or tails of why these Christians were so adamant about Jesus. So in other words, the scenario and the society a first century Asia Minor that received this letter is an awful lot like present day America. I mean, we don't suffer from a governmental standard of persecution, but we have daily pressure against us 
from the adversary, from those that are not Christians, that daily pressure to conceal faith and compromise ethics and conform to the wisdom of the times. So 1 Peter is just as fresh and just as relevant as the news feed that came across your phone this morning. It's just as relevant, it's just as fresh. It is Christians trying to live out their Christian faith in the midst of a society that doesn't understand and that pressures and persecutes people of the Christian faith. So 1 Peter is written to answer the question, how do you suffer well for the gospel? I do need to make a distinction between suffering and suffering for the gospel. Because not all suffering is suffering for the gospel. I mean, just because a person has cancer, that does not necessarily mean they're suffering for the gospel. Just because you failed a test doesn't necessarily mean that you're suffering for the gospel. You you may have gotten cut from the baseball team, and that may or may not be because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It may be just because you can't catch a ground ball and you can't hit a curveball. I mean, you know, I mean, you may suffer simply for suffering's sake, but here Peter is talking about the difference between suffering in general versus suffering for the sake of the gospel. So how do you suffer well for the sake of the gospel? That that the things that come against you, that are leveled against you, are simply because of your explicit faith in Jesus Christ. How do you handle that well? How do you suffer well For the sake of the gospel. Verse 15, he says, In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. That regardless what comes down the pike, regardless what happens to you, you have set it upon your heart. Jesus is Lord. You've set it upon your heart. He is sovereign. He is in charge. He calls the shots. I am his property. I belong to him. Nothing happens to me that catches him off guard. He's in charge. Set upon your heart. Jesus is Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared because you, my friend, ought to be the most hopeful people on the planet. Let me ask you, Christian, are you the most hopeful person on the planet? I mean, I've been in church a long time. And I know a lot of church people, and the word hopeful doesn't come to mind synonymous with most church members. I mean, there there are a lot of people who have been in church so long, they're just as negative, just as cynical, just as worldly, and just as pagan as a society. And here, Peter says, we ought to live in such a way that the watching world sees the hope that we have in the midst of suffering. So that unbelievers ask us, what's the reason that you have so much hope? When was the last time that a lost person asked you, can you please tell me why you still have a smile on your face? When was the last time that a lost person came up to you and said, can you please give me the reason for the hope that you have? I mean, look around. Everything's falling apart. And yet you are an individual who's hopeful and it's, and it's genuine. It's not just, you know, plastering a smile across your face, but you genuinely have hope. How is that possible? Friend, when was the last time that a pagan came up to ask you that? You know, a lot of times we think about our testimony and the story of our walk with Christ, and we'll talk about it in a Christian context, 
And other people will encourage us because of our testimony and they'll say, wow, you're a person of deep faith. You're a person of great hope. And Peter would say, that's great, that's fine. If other Christians see you as a hopeful individual, that's great. He says, I'm more interested in what do lost people see you as. How does the watching world evaluate you? Do they see you as somebody who always has a hopeful disposition, regardless of what's happening or what ridicule or slander comes against you for the cause of the Savior? Because after all, at the heart of our faith is hope. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 3, he speaks about this living hope that we have. We have been born again in a living hope that's based upon the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this living hope, and this living hope transforms how we suffer well. So friend, let me ask you tonight, are you known for your hopeful disposition? Do other people ask you, what's the reason that you have so much hope in this world? And my friend, i got to be honest with you, uh, Lost people don't ask me that enough. They need to ask me that more. And I'm just being transparent with you. Because I don't want to be just as cynical, just as negative, just as depressed, just as worldly as anybody else in my culture. And just stop and think about it. A lot of times Christians are portrayed in the very same way as a secular society. And we've got to be remarkably different. And what's that remarkable difference? Our hope. So he says in verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It is God's will for you to always be faithful. Is it God's will for you to suffer? Well, maybe, maybe not. It is God's will for you to be faithful in the midst of suffering. So it is always God's will for you to do right. Let me ask it another way. Is it ever God's will for you to do wrong or evil? And the answer is no. It is never God's will for you to do evil. It is always God's will for you to be faithful. For you to be faithful, yes, obviously in the good times, but also faithful in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering. It is better, Peter says, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Because your suffering, according to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, is only for a little while. In other words, whatever suffering you have for the sake of the gospel has a short shelf life. Your suffering's only for a little while. You say, well, but I've been persecuted for years. I mean, it's been a long time. I, I lost my job because of my faith in Christ, and it's been six months since I found another job. That's a long time. Yes, my friend, but in the cosmic scope, those are short times. Because God is able to sustain you even in the little while and the great times because God is in charge of all things. What's ironic is that Peter, he resisted the idea of a suffering servant and a suffering Messiah when Jesus was walking in his three-year ministry. Do you remember at Caesarea Philippi when the question is asked, who do people say that I am? And it's Peter who says, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still Jeremiah or another prophet reincarnated. And Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of God. And beginning at that very moment, Jesus began to explicitly tell Peter and the disciples, he must suffer. And it's Peter who pulled him aside and said, Jesus, we can't have any of this suffering business. I mean, you've got to be a mighty macho Messiah. You've got to come in and tell the Roman government who's boss. And, and the Peter of the gospel is different than the Peter who writes this epistle. 
Because at the heart of his epistle is a theology of suffering. He came to the point where he said it was necessary for Jesus to suffer. And if it's necessary for Jesus to suffer, then guess what's going to happen to Jesus' people? Jesus' people will also suffer. Remember, he gives us an example, a model, a template of how we must suffer and suffer well. You may recall the last time we got together that I talked that, that Peter uses that word that was the uh, Jesus is the template. Just like when a child traces the letters and learns how to write the letters, that child uses a template. And here uh, in chapter two, it is Peter who says Jesus is that example. He is that template. He is that model. He shows us how to suffer well so we look to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith you come to verse 18 and we find the third Christological passage in first Peter that's significant because we're all we're only in chapter three so in every chapter of first Peter there is a passage about how great Jesus is, and the description is Christological in the sense that it's always about his death, burial, and resurrection. So it's in chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. It's in chapter 2, verses 22 and 25. And it's here in chapter 3, beginning of verse 18. On all three occasions, Peter describes Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection. In chapter 1, uh, he speaks of the necessity of Calvary after he talked about all the activities of life. In chapter two, he speaks of the necessity of Calvary in the context of the conversation about relationships, how we interact one with the other. And here in chapter three, he's gonna talk about the necessity of Jesus Christ in the context of how we suffer. So let's just stop and think about that. Peter is saying that everything in life is tied and tethered to Calvary. Activities of life, relationships in life, suffering in life. That's all of life. Everything in life can be stuffed in one of those three categories. It's either the activities that you do, the relationships that you have, or the suffering you experience. And Peter says the way you make sense out of any of that is by tying and tethering everything in life to your accurate understanding of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross for you. So in verses 18 to 22, he speaks about what Jesus did on the cross and how it helps us to suffer well. So these five verses, 18 to 22, let me just remind you of what they say. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It had only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Can I just tell you uh, what Martin Luther said as he looked at these five verses of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. Martin Luther wrote this, and I quote, this is a strange text. And certainly, a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant, end quote. 
When we get done tonight, some of you may quote Martin Luther. You know, Pastor, I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. Because you look at those five verses and there's some things that are clear. But there's a lot of it that's quite confusing. I told Matt, our student pastor, I said, you know, tonight's a great night for all the students to be in here because this is probably the most technical passage in all of 1 Peter. I mean, this is the most technical, nitty-gritty passage where we're going to try to understand what does the apostle mean. And at the end of the study, you may agree with Martin Luther. I don't have a foggiest idea. I don't have a clue what the apostle meant. So I say that because uh, I'll tell you up front, it is difficult for us to understand everything that the apostle is meaning through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But let me begin just by saying what, what seems to be clear. What seems to be clear in 18 to 22 is that in verse 18, he begins by simply saying, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And that seems to be pretty clear. What's clear is that the death of Jesus is sufficient. It is once for all. Now what does that mean? It means the death of Jesus never has to be repeated. It is a one-time sacrifice. Peter is not a universalist. He is not saying that Jesus died for all in the sense that all dogs go to heaven. No, Peter is not a universalist. He is saying that the activity of the death of Jesus is a singular event. It is once for all. It is never to be repeated again. We don't have to offer any other sacrifices. Why? Because the death of the Lamb of God was once for all. It was a one-time deal. It literally happened about 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And the death of Jesus was sufficient. It is once for all. The death of Jesus is also substitutionary. It is one for many, the righteous for the unrighteous. We've been together for about five years, and you've heard me say umpteen times that there's a sweet swap of salvation, that, that the innocent one was declared guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared innocent in the sight of God. Where do I get that? I get that from 1 Peter chapter 3. The righteous one died for us unrighteous people so that we who are unrighteous may be declared righteous in the sight of God. So the death of Jesus, it is sufficient and it is substitutionary. We cannot understand what Jesus did for us on the cross apart from substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in our stead. We're the ones who should receive an eternal condemnation in hell because of our sin. And Jesus, the God-man, willingly vicariously, literally stepped in our place, took the bullet for us, said, I'll die so that you can live. The righteous one was declared unrighteous so that we who are unrighteous may be declared righteous both now and forevermore. So the death of Jesus is sufficient and it is substitutionary. The death of Jesus is also salvific, which is just a word that means it's, it brings about salvation. Because Peter says 
Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. That's why Jesus died. Before the death of Jesus, we were alienated from God, enemies of God, separate from God. Because of the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross, through that, he has brought us safely and securely to God. He has Mend the fences. He has, he has uh, made enemies into friends. He has adopted us uh, into the family of God. Whatever analogy you want to use that's from the scripture, Jesus did this to bring us to God. Apart from Jesus, we cannot get to God. We cannot get to him through our good works, through our, our merit. Uh, we, we can't get to him. We can't do enough good so that we can gain access to God. The only way we can get to God is because Jesus brought us to God through his blood shed on the cross. So the death of Jesus is sufficient, it's substitutionary, it's salvific. You get to verses 18 and 19, and we also know if you... If you uh, uh, go a little bit deeper, that 18 and 19 are built upon three participles that unite the sentence. And what those three participles do in 18 and 19, it further describes what we know in verse 18. Okay? So, so the, the statement of what we know is that Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now you go a little bit deeper in verses 18 and 19, how did he do that? He was put to death in the body. It's the first participle. Second participle, he was made alive by the Spirit. Third participle is a real short one, he went. Okay? Those are the three participles that kind of unite the sentence in, the, in Greek. And you say, why is that important? Because the power of the Word of God is in the Word of God. So you got to kind of know the Scripture in order to know uh, what the Scripture intended uh, to mean and what it, was, what it was saying. So what unites the sentence together are those three participles that the way Jesus accomplished this, he was put to death in the body. That means he suffered and died. He was made alive by the Spirit. What does that mean? It means he was raised from the dead on the third day, Easter Sunday morning. Woo-hoo, right? And then he went. Now, after his resurrection, where did Jesus go? After his resurrection, he went to heaven, ascension. So what Peter is describing is the basic gospel story that Jesus suffered and died. He was raised on the third day. He ascended into the heavens. Last time we were together, I think I made mention that if you follow the footsteps of Jesus, Jesus will always, always take you to a cross, lead you to an empty grave, and guide you to glory. Always. That's what the gospel always does. It always takes you to that place of sacrifice. It always takes you to that place of resurrection and new life. And it always promises a home in heaven. The suffering of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, and the glorious ascension. That's always the gospel. And I think that's what he's describing here. All right? So, so far, I think everybody's tracking, so we understand. Now it gets really muddy. Because then the next sentence says, Preaching to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What in the world does that mean? Martin Luther has no idea. Okay, um, I'll tell you that one of the more popular ancient 
historical interpretations of that sentence is this. It's called the dissensus view. And here's the dissensus view. That it is believed that Jesus descended into hell between his death on Good Friday and resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. And while Jesus was in hell, he preached to the deceased, those who lived prior to Calvary. He emptied hell, proclaimed the gospel, giving them the opportunity to believe. That's the dissensus view. Can I quickly tell you, I do not agree with that interpretation at all. I do not agree. That has long been taught as the accurate understanding of this verse in 1 Peter, and I think that's not right. I, I, I do not affirm in any way this dissensus view. Why? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, nowhere does the Bible teach that Jesus went to hell. Nowhere does the Bible teach that Jesus went to hell. Um, I can make a good argument that hell came upon Jesus at Calvary because at Calvary, Jesus endured an eternity's worth of condemnation that God squeezed into a six-hour window in the third decade of the first century on a faithful Friday to the point that it is Jesus who then declares to Telestai, which is translated, it is finished. What's finished? Payment in full is finished, right? So Jesus declared at Calvary's hill, Penalty's been paid. I have taken hell for you. That's in essence what happened. So I can make the argument that hell came to Calvary, but I do not believe that Jesus went to hell. Make sense? All right? Because I don't think anywhere in the scripture does it teach that Jesus went to hell. Secondly, nowhere, nowhere, nowhere does the Bible teach a post-mortem opportunity to believe. No, nowhere. Does the Bible say, listen, if you happen to live before Calvary and you did not follow after the triune God of grace, then you had another opportunity to accept the gospel. And it's when you were in the flames of hell. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that anybody has any opportunity to repent and believe except while they're here on earth. There is no post-mortem opportunity for salvation. That's what makes the necessity of evangelism so imperative for you and for me today. We have to go and tell the nations because what happens if somebody dies and they do not have explicit faith in Jesus Christ? If somebody dies, they go, they go to a place called hell. And that ought, to, that ought to scare us, that ought to motivate us, that ought to make us go, no, no, we don't want anybody to go there. And that ought to motivate us to do evangelism. Because the Bible nowhere teaches in a post-mortem opportunity for somebody to repent. I'll also say this, that the word, uh, that the census view is based on the idea that, that prison that word prison is hell. The problem is the Greek word prison does not mean hell. It is nowhere translated. It is nowhere implied that that word means hell. I mean, if, if the word was hell, then Peter could have used the word sheol. He could have used another word for hell. He could have been very clear. But he used a word that's rarely, if ever, in the New Testament. In fact, you've got to go outside the New Testament to understand the meaning of the word. 
And it's, it's a prison. It's, it's, it's a, it doesn't mean hell. Whatever it does mean, it doesn't mean hell. And let me also say why I don't believe in the descensus view is because the text says nothing about Jesus descending. It says nothing about Jesus descending into hell. And the last argument I would make is that um, is, is an argument of silence, but why would Jesus only preach to the flood generation and not the subsequent generations between the flood and Malachi? I mean, because you and I both know the flood happened in Genesis chapter 6. And here it's speaking about, uh, if, if you take it as, that Jesus is, pre- is, is speaking to individuals who um, were there at the flood and they were outside the ark. Why, why would Jesus only go to that generation? Because you got a lot of people from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then a lot of people while the Israelites were in Egypt. And then once they had their wilderness wanderings. And then, then the institution of the judges and the monarchy and the united kingdom and the divided kingdom and, and all the prophets. There's a lot of people between Genesis 12 of Abraham and Malachi, right? So, so why would Jesus only preach to that generation of the flood? So because of those reasons, I... Um, I do not believe, I do not affirm the dissensus view. There's a second uh, pretty popular view of what Peter is driving at. And uh, it's simply stated in this way, that the incarnate Christ preached through Noah to the people of his day. And they didn't believe, and therefore they are imprisoned in hell. Because Noah was uh, commonly known as a preacher of righteousness and repentance. Um, there was no one more righteous. There it was a righteous man. Uh, he was bold in his proclamation. And so there have been many throughout the ages who have affirmed this uh, idea that this is a, an example of the incarnate Christ. That um, this is an example of Jesus preaching through Noah uh, the good news of the gospel to his generation. Just as Jesus preaches through all the preachers of the gospel through every generation. And so people like St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin, they, they all affirmed that view. This is an example of, of the incarnate Christ preaching through the person named Noah. And as I think about it, this is, I think, where I land. Um, I think that Peter is describing for us in these couple of verses the supreme victory that we have in Jesus Christ that is for every generation and greater than all evil. I think that Peter is being a preacher in this moment. And I think that Noah serves him well as an illustration. In a lot of sermons, there's an illustration. The illustration helps to prove the point. And so Peter, I think, is being a good preacher And once again, what's the whole context? He is talking about how do you suffer well? All your suffering is connected, tied and tethered to the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what Jesus did on the cross is not just sufficient for you, but it's been sufficient from eternity past to eternity future. This is not a limited time offer. This is is a salvation that can be applied to anybody who will believe. Let me give you an example, the preacher says. So then he talks about Noah. Now, why would he reach back and lift up Noah? Certainly the preacher could have talked about a lot of Old Testament biblical characters. Why why go back to Noah? And I think here is an important time for us to understand who Peter is writing to. 
You remember that these are Christians that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. You say, so what? What's the big deal about Asia Minor? Well, in the first century, the people living in Asia Minor, the pagan people living in Asia Minor, if you were to ask them, who is the one biblical character that you know? They would say, Noah. Why? Well, when the ark came to rest after the flood receded, where, in theory, did it land? Asia Minor. So Asia Minor had pop culture folklore. They had at least four flood stories. I mean, the one that's in the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, but they said, you know, that's such a good story, let's make up three other ones. So they had a whole bunch in their pop culture. And you know, you know examples in our American pop culture, stories that sound religious, but they're not biblical, right? I mean, we know stories that sound religious, but they're not biblical. Such is the case in first century Asia Minor. There were so many flood stories. And if you were to ask people on the street, who do you, who, who's the one person you know about in the Bible? They'd say Noah. In fact, they liked Noah so much that in the first century, the Roman government had minted a golden coin with Noah's inscription on it. It's pretty prominent. Uh, and so many archaeologists have found these coins that are there in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. They're there in Asia Minor, and they have uh, an inscription that this is Noah of the flood. And so Peter knows who he's talking to. He's speaking to a group of people, um, and, and they're familiar with the biblical story of Noah, and they would say that's the greatest biblical character. They have gold coins that have his inscription on it, and it's believed that when the waters receded, that the ark rested somewhere in and around Asia Minor. So because of that, I think Peter pulls this example, plus, plus, he wants the early church to remember and to know that Jesus is sufficient over every evil. Let me ask you, why did God flood the earth? He flooded the earth according to Genesis chapter 6 because, and I quote, every inclination of the thoughts of man was only evil all the time. The case could be made that Historically, biblically, one of the worst generations to ever live, one of the most wicked generations, the generation before the flood. The case could be made that, that that is the vilest, that is the most wicked generation. We think ours is bad, pales in comparison to Genesis chapter 6. What's Peter's point? Peter is saying, you know what? That even in that generation, the gospel of Jesus Christ still works. Even in that generation, what happened in that generation, God was still able to save Noah and his family. I know there were only a few. He says there are only eight of them. There are only a few, but they were fully saved. Don't miss the analogy. What Peter is doing is he's saying, listen, Christian in Asia Minor, you think you're in the minority. There are only a few of you. But if you have explicit faith in Jesus Christ, even the few will be fully saved. You can rest assured in the victory that you have in Jesus Christ. What Jesus died for, he gave you the victory and it covers all of your sin. I realize that like in the days of Noah, there are only a few of you surrounded by immorality. But God was still able to fully save his people. 
and he's still doing it for you today. And I think this is what this is what Peter is driving in. I think he's the preacher. I think he's using this as an example to show the awesome victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Once again, everything is tied to what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary. So just like in Noah's day, he was a righteous man in a wicked culture. So you need to be a righteous person in a wicked culture. Noah and his family were the minority. They were surrounded by unbelievers. You are a minority surrounded by unbelievers. Oh, we've we've been lulled into this false notion that America is a Christian nation. It is not. America is not a Christian nation. We are a minority. I mean, the remnant, those who really believe, those who show up on a Wednesday night. I mean, can I get an amen, right? I mean, we're, we're a minority. We're a minority surrounded by unbelievers. But even if we're few, we are still fully saved. And it's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just like in the days of Noah, um, we are to be bold in our witness. Noah, he had very few people standing with him. He was bold in his witness. Students, you may have very few people standing with you. Still be bold in your witness. Adults in the marketplace, you may be all by yourself. You may be the only believer. You may be the only preacher of righteousness and repentance. You may be the only Noah in your marketplace. But do not allow that to shy you away and shut you up. You be bold, just like the preacher of Noah. Because God will save a few. He always does. And the few are fully saved. Then he finishes up with this idea of baptism. He says in verse 21, this baptism that now saves you also. Okay, you got a red flag going off, don't you? Boom, boom, red flag, red flag, red flag. What? Peter, are you saying that it's baptismal regeneration? Are you saying that we are saved because of baptism? And he says, no, just read the text. Because as you get lower, he will say that uh, uh, the, the way that we are saved, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's not saying that water baptism saves you. In fact, he gives a couple of qualifiers. He says this baptism thing, um, it does not remove dirt from the body. It doesn't remove moral filth from your life. Your baptism is a, he calls it a pledge. A pledge for right living. What should your baptism serve in your mind as a reminder of? When you, when you think about Christian, Christian, when you think about the fact that, that you're a believer, that you were baptized in the waters of baptism, what should that represent? And for most of us, we say, well, it just represents, you know, an outward sign of an inward reality. That's what it represents. You know, it's kind of like my wedding ring. It just tells the world I belong to Jesus. Right? I mean, most of us say, no, no, it's not that at all. Your baptism is a pledge that you made to the Lord where you said, 
because I so believe in the transforming work of the gospel, because I so believe that my sins were nailed to the cross and I bear it no more, and Jesus was raised on the third day, I pledge to you, God, I pledge to you by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will help me to live rightly in a watching world. That baptism is a pledge that you made to the Lord. It's not just a sign. It's not just a symbol. It's not just we believe in getting wet. No. It is a pledge. It is a constant reminder to you in your life that Jesus gives you the victory. And his victory will cover over all evil. Your evil. My evil. Even the evil of the wicked generation in the days of Noah. All evil can be covered by the blood of Christ. So that baptism is a pledge. It is a sign. It is a request where we say unto the Lord, help me to live rightly. In other words, help me to suffer well. Because what Jesus died for can and must be lived out in your life. Let me say that again. What Jesus died for can and must be lived out in your life. There is no other option, friend. You cannot be just a easy, simple believer just going along. No. What Jesus died for so that your sins could be removed, so that you could be brought to God. What Jesus died for must be lived out in your life and mine. So Peter is taking faith to a whole new level. I mean, Peter is telling the church, listen, this is what it looks like to live in a culture that is pressuring you to acquiesce, pressuring you, making fun of you, slandering you, ridiculing you, calling you to compromise your ethics, your beliefs. Listen, don't ever forget that I heard an old, old story how a savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning and his precious blood's atoning. And I repented of my sin and I won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him. And all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. The victory he secures for me, he secures for you. And that victory must be lived out. To God be the glory. God bless you, church. See you next time.